Well, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 19 and 20 this morning, a little bit of 19 and a larger chunk of 20. If we haven't met yet, my name is Kevin Barham, the college pastor here at Grace Southwood at 11 o'clock. The college meets over across the street at A&M Consolidated High School, and uh, so it's a, it's a great um, opportunity if you're a college student to go check that out and get into relationships with other college students. Families, you are also welcome to join us, but uh, this is a better home for you uh, right here with Blake. It is an honor to be here with you. So Exodus chapter 19 is where we're going to be. Let me read a little bit for us and pray for us one more time. Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 1, and I'll read a little bit of chapter 20 as well. Exodus chapter 19 says this. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called out to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and to tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice... And keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Jump over to chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water of the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God and a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations, but showing steadfast love to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the Lord your God, the name, in, the name of the Lord your God, in vain, for the Lord will not behold, hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your sons, your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, or your livestock, or the sojourner who's in your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We pray for us one more time. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to the reality of your covenant of Mount Sinai, what you were intending with that covenant promise. And Lord, I I pray that as we open up your word and we study the law of God, you might see where we fall short and the solution to the great dilemma of your law. I lift up this time in your name. Amen. Well, in our culture, we don't have a lot of categories uh, to describe covenants. Uh, we, we wouldn't say, uh, will you be my roommate? Sure. Okay, let's covenant together. Like, we wouldn't do that. Like, the only real um, example of covenants in our American culture would be marriage. I remember when I first got married, uh, it was one time, and, uh, and I remember that moment. My wife and I, uh, when we were, we dated almost nine years by the time we got married. Uh, she was 14 when we started uh, dating, and uh, we got married. I was almost 25. I was two days before 25, gave up my birthday uh, for this moment. 
And, and what's, what was crazy is that although we had this relationship, there was something new that came with this new commitment, this new covenant. And I remember walking through the process of preparing for marriage, and we even wrote out our own vows. And we had vows that the pastor had given us. He was my mentor and discipled me, and so he had his vows that were commitments that I was going to be making before God and everyone. And, uh, and, and then we had our own that we were writ- writing and that we were going to read to one another. And all of those things were all together. And we were planning this process and getting ready for this moment. And, and it was a beautiful, exciting time. I mean, marriage is absolutely amazing. It's a thrilling moment. But there's something that happened when I'm standing up, on, you know, up at the front and I see her walk through the back of the room and start coming out the doors at the back of the place we were getting married. And I saw her walking forward, and there was just this flood of emotion. I mean, part of it was, was a beautiful flood. I mean, because there was this intimacy part. Like, this is the person I'm going to bind myself to for the rest of my life. Like, this is the one. And if I was ever, ever question about whether this is the one, or those nine years that passed, is this the one? Like, this was the moment that this, we're solidifying. This is the one. And so there was this excitement for this intimacy. But there was also this, this fear because of the weight of responsibility. There's an excitement for the intimacy, but there's a reality of this, of this, I'm responsible for this person, and I'm responsible for this relationship. And so the weight of that just sunk a little deeper. I mean, there was, there's the idea of love. I, I love this woman. We're going to be married together. But then there's this law, like I'm signing a contract. Like, we are going to give this to the government. We are going to be new together. And so the weight of that hits. And, and what's also crazy is that you have a new role. I'm going to have a new role as husband. But it, the new role doesn't come with, like, new capacities. Like, the government doesn't issue those. You turn in that marriage license, but they do not give you the ability to be a quality husband. Like, you're responsible to bring that yourself. And the crazy part of that, this covenant is that it reveals, honestly, what we see in this covenant that Moses is making with the people. There are responsibilities that we have. But the challenge is, do we have the capacities to fulfill these responsibilities? And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the Mosaic Law, and here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at four qualities of the Mosaic Law. The purpose of the law, the practice of the law, the limits, and the solution. Well, let's get to the setting. And unfortunately, I left the clicker in the back of the room, and so gentlemen, I'm going to need your help. Um, so the, the, the first slide I'm, I'm going to show you is uh, actually... Um, where we believe Mount, the Mount Sinai region to be. We don't know the exact mountain that they, are, they climbed up, but we do know the region that they traveled to. And if you've been following with us in this, thank you, sir, uh, in, this, uh, in this journey through Exodus, what we've seen is that God redeemed his people. He saved them out of slavery in Egypt, and he leads them on this journey to the wilderness, to Mount Sinai. Interestingly, this is also where Moses was called to go save his people, the same area. And they come to this mountain region, and God says, I want to show you what it looks like to be my people. And for over the next 11 months, they stayed at Mount Sinai and received the law of God. So this is going to be a long morning, people. Uh, But for the next 11 months, they spent time in this region, in this desert region, under this mountain, getting the law of God, the requirements that God was going to set down for this people. And and if you've asked yourself, the question I've asked myself is, what was the reason? What was the purpose for giving the law? 
I give you three reasons, three purposes for the law. The first one is intimacy. Let's read it again together. Verse 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. The first main purpose is intimacy. Look what he says. He says, you shall be my treasured possession. Now, think about that language. Think about those words. If you were to introduce yourself to me and say, hey, my name is Jimmy, and I would say, Jimmy, that's so great to meet you. You are my treasured possession. You would say, okay, that just got awkward. You just met Jimmy. You don't own Jimmy like that. Like, who would you say that to? Like, this is my treasured possession. You would say that to someone close to you. You would say that about your spouse. You would say that about your kids' parents. You would say, this is my treasured, I got four kids. This is my treasured Juju. She is three years old. And, and it is the language of intimacy. And God's saying, I want to have an intimate relationship. You are mine. And it's not um, a ruling uh, in a negative way. It's, a, it's an intimate closeness that he has with his people. The second reason for the, the law was of a way to bless his people. Deuteronomy 28 really defines this really clearly for us in the second giving of the law. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law to a new generation of Israel. And he says this, If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, and being careful to do all the commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey my voice, the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall you be in the the fruit of your womb, in the fruit of your ground, um, of your cattle, the increase of your herds, your uh, the young of your your flock. Blessed shall you be, shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall be when you come in, go out. So, like you see the theme of if you obey me, I will bless you, and I'm going to bless you in every area of life. Your work, your family, your future, everything will be blessed by me. And that's what I want to give you. This is the avenue for God's blessing. And if you've listened to Blake for any length of time, one of the things Blake loves to do is walk through the covenants of God. And the first covenant that the people of Israel got was the Abrahamic covenant. And that promise to Abraham was land, this region that they're about to go into. Seed, that's, that's a generation of new people and blessing. You're going to be a blessing to the entire world. And that was an unconditional promise that God made to Abraham for his future. But the Mosaic covenant comes along and says, this is how you participate in those blessings. If you obey me, If you follow me, if you do what I'm asking you to do, you fulfill your part of the law, I will bless you, and I want to bless you. And God's committing himself. This is my side of it. I will bless you. You're going to be my intimate people. And thirdly, there's representation. Is this in Exodus 19, 5 through 6? It says, You'll be a, verse 6, and you shall be a, to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. He says, here's what I want. I want you to represent me to the world. When you come to me and you listen to my voice and, and you receive the blessing and you're part of this intimate relationship, it will be a spotlight to the rest of the world what it's like to live with God. Every nation in that time had their own gods and their own ways to uh, appease the gods and their own belief in their particular god of their region of land. And God says, yes, and I'm showing you. 
If you follow me, if you obey me, I'm going to bless you and you're going to be a spotlight to the glory of God to the entire world. I want you to represent me across the world. And to do this, there's civil laws that are going to come. There's laws that they're going to have in, in terms of how to, how to correct people and, and, and how to establish a government, how to establish a nation. There's going to be ceremonial laws. Here's how you sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins and to cover over sins at this point in time. There's, there's going to be moral laws. Here's how you relate to one another. And all those are going to come in the perp, in giving of the law. And I'll tell you what, the law was a gift. It wasn't a burden. The law itself was good. Here's how you're going to relate to one another. Here's how you're going to establish a nation. And here's how you're going to receive the blessings of God. Before this, they didn't know what they needed to do. Now they have clarity, crystal clarity. Read Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. It's crystal clear what they need to do to receive the blessings of God. And here's the key on the law. The law was not given to redeem a people, to save them. It was given to a redeemed people. They were already saved. They were already rescued out of Egypt. It wasn't to to make them right with God. It was to show them, here's how you live in the blessings of God. It's extremely important. And what God is saying at the beginning of this is, I am committing myself to you. I want you to be my people, and I want you to live under me in an honoring way. But here's the problem. Rules... Without relationship, bring rebellion. And so God's saying, hey, I'm the one who saved you. I rescued you out of Egypt. I bore you on eagle's wings. We have an intimate relationship. And so you don't need to rebel against me. I'm for you. But a relationship without rules leads, brings resentment. And, and you know this. You've experienced this with your roommates, college students. You're like, I love you. You're so great. We should be roommates together. And they move in. And you're like, surely they have the same view of cleanliness that I do, you know? Surely they, they honor my possessions the way that I think they should. Surely they won't drink my milk or eat my ice cream or eat the rest of my food. Surely they won't wear my clothes and then not wash them and put them back in my closet. Like, that won't happen, will it? And then you move in with them and you're like, they have a different level <laughs> of cleanliness than I thought was humanly possible, right? And, and I... And you see that and you're just like, why do I resent this person? It's because you never actually establish the boundaries of the relationship. Relationships actually require boundaries. It's actually really healthy to define them. And, and married people, you've, you know this. Wives, you thought, oh man, I'm going to marry the man of my dreams. Oh, and he's going to be so clean. He's going to anticipate when to clean. Like, I only have to remind him. Like, he'll know when to clean before it's even dirty, Right? It'll be amazing. And like, not only that, like he'll anticipate when uh, we don't have enough food in the house and he'll already have it. Like he'll, he'll go to the grocery store because he'll know what I'm thinking about making that next evening. And he'll know to go get those things. And then you get married. I remember <laughs> early on in marriage, uh, I had opened up the pantry. Bread had fallen out of the pantry. And I was like, oh, I got to run. And so I mistakenly kicked it under the refrigerator and ran and came back. And then I get a text from my wife. She's like, why is the bread in the middle of the floor? Like, and I'm just like, I had to run. She's like, what were you thinking? <laughs> I was like, I didn't know it was a rule. And uh, apparently it was. 
And what God is doing in this moment is he's saying, hey, look, this is how I want you to relate to me. And this is how I want you to relate with one another. The first ten commandments are basically the divisions of the, of the law. Um, and it, it's a summary of all of the law. And the way it's divided is really two major divisions. I want you to love God and I want you to love one another. This is how you relate to me. This is what it looks like to love for me. And that's the commandments really one through four. And this is how you're supposed to love one another. This is how you care for one another. This is so crucial. Jesus summed it up this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. Jesus summarized the entire law in really just two relationships. Our relationship with God and our relationship with others. And in, in all of these, what I want to do in this, this next section of time is I want to walk through kind of a basic overview of these ten commandments. What was the intent of each of these commandments in relationship with God and relationship with others? The first one is this. The first commandment is that you should have no other gods before me. That I alone am God for you. And this is distinct Most other uh, religions at this time had multiple gods and multiple ways to worship. This was strict monotheism. It was one of the first examples of monotheism actually in history. And God says, look, you are not to worship any other god before me. This will distinguish you from every other nation. Martin Luther, as he uh, looked at um, the law of God, said, this actual first commandment establishes the rest of them. If we believe in God above all else and hold him first above all other gods and do not worship any other gods, the rest of the commandments will naturally flow. And what God is asking for is fidelity. Will you be faithful to me? And if you think of the covenant in terms of an intimate relationship and a commitment of both law and love, it would make sense. When you're standing at the to, to, at the, the moment when you're getting married and you say, like, I'm going to commit my life to you, you wouldn't say, well, that's sure is selfish. Like, fidelity is an expectation. And saying this relationship is more like marriage. You're supposed to be faithful to one another. And the second commandment is this. I do not make idols. And don't make my idols of, of just about anything. I mean, any creatures or, or anything. Do not make idols. And what is an idol? It's a representation of a God that you're worshiping. And so it could refer, refer to a foreign idol, some other God that they would worship and construct. And, but he also says, you're not supposed to make, you should not make an idol of me. Because an idol is something, when we compare it to God, it means this. That I'm trying to make a God I can control and conceive of, and can conceive of. And God's saying, look, I'm beyond your conception. I'm beyond what you can think about. And so any object you make to resemble me is going to be much smaller than I actually am and much weaker than I actually am. So you, you don't have a conception of me. But secondly, you can't control me. Any God you make, you're trying to control and manipulate. And actually, this, this command to not make idols is actually a heart issue. In Ezekiel 14, Ezekiel says, These people have set up idols in their heart. So his concern wasn't the idol that they had on on a podium. It was the idol that was actually set up in their heart because in your heart it reveals what you actually love. There's a book um, by Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods. I highly recommend it. And he writes this in that book. 
What are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement? But these same things have assumed mythical proportions in our individual lives and society. We may not physically kneel before a statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into desperation and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher position in business and gain the wealth and prestige. Because what idols do is they take. And I'm a God who gives. And so any idol you set up is an idol that you will choose to serve, and it will not bring you closer to me, and it will, not en- will, it will not enhance your life. It will take from your life. So don't set up idols in your life, in your heart. The third commandment is don't use the Lord's name in vain, which basically means don't treat the Lord's name as common. Don't make rash v- vows, saying like, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm totally going to do this. I'm going to do this. God, I-, I promise I will do this. I-, I will promise to do this thing. He's like, you're treating my name as common. Don't, don't do that. Don't make promises that you're not to God that you're not committed to. And fourth, and I love this one, it's to keep the Sabbath and make it holy. And he ties it to creation in Genesis. He says that God worked for six days and on the seventh day he rested. And I want you to just put yourself in the position of the Israelites at this moment. They have been saved from slavery in Egypt for 400 years. They had taskmasters masters over them. And so their entire life was work and sleep, get up early and keep on working. Seven days a week. And you saw at the end of their, of their time, the Pharaoh was making everything even harder. He was increasing their workload. And he says, yes, I want you to value me above all else. Well, how do we do that, God? Well, I want you to love me. Okay, no idols. All right. I want you to, to not use my name in vain. Okay, I got that. I got that. Okay. And I want you to chill. I want you to take time and don't do anything. God, you're so oppressive. You're like, yeah, yeah, I know. Think about it. You're going to go home on Sunday and you're not going to work. You're like, why? Well, you're going to worship me and think about all the gifts I've given you. Why? Because you need to rest. Why? Because work reveals two things about your heart. Work reveals your desire to achieve and your ceaseless exhaustion or reveals your fear that God actually is not going to take care of you. You've got to do the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. God says, yeah, yeah. you're going to cease from all that. You're going to trust me. I care for you, so you take a day off. That's what it looks like to live in this new community. We take rest days. God says, I want you to have a relationship with me that's built on love and honor. And then he turns the coin and says, now I want you to talk about your relationship with others. This is how I want you to relate to me. I want you to love me. I want you to honor me. Don't build up idols. And I want you to relax. Like, that's what I want you to do, to love me. That sounds like an oppressive God, right? And then I'm going to turn the coin. I want you to look at others. I want, to see, I want you to see how you're supposed to relate with one another. And the first relationship he sets up is this, to honor your parents. That means to respect them, to care for them, to, to not just say, Mom, you're stupid. Dad, you're stupid. You don't say that. That is dishonoring. And I'm, I say that kind of flippantly, but that was things that I said as a teenager. 
So every teenager, if you know this, you're supposed to honor them. And so the question is often asked, when can I dishonor my parents? And the answer is, you can't. And that's like the first layer of authority that God set in humanity. He gave Adam and Eve and they had kids. And he says, you're, you are supposed to submit um, honor, submit honor to your parents. You're supposed to respect them. You're supposed to honor them. Does that mean you have to do everything they say for the rest of your life? No. But it does mean you honor and respect them even when you disagree with them. Disagree agreeably. You honor them because God set authority in your life. And that's a beautiful thing. The sixth one, he says, do not kill. And that does not mean that... um, Capital punishment isn't part of the structure of the government he set up. There actually is capital punishment. Um, But he says, I don't want you to um, take human life without divine authority. So I want you to care for one another. We do not kill one another. Because man is made in the image of God, and we don't destroy what's made in the image of God. Seventh commandment is do not commit adultery. And what's that, Kevin? American culture is what, what that is. That's um, having sex with someone you're not married to. Specifically, someone that's married. That means all sex with someone who you're not married to is under that big category of adultery. Pretty obvious. Number eight, do not steal. Don't take what's not yours. But it was gum and it was just sitting there. Yeah, that's stealing. Yeah, well, it was, it was a test, but the professor left it out there. And I just took the answers from it. Yeah, that's stealing. Yeah, it was someone else's notes or someone else's book. Like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's called stealing. Well, it's, oh, I, I mean, they didn't take credit for that, so I just took credit for that, like, project or at work or that assignment. Yeah, that's, that's stealing. That's taking, taking what's not yours. So don't steal. We want to have a society that respects private property of others and gives credit where credit's due. We don't take from them. The ninth commandment, we don't bear false witness, means we don't lie about one another. We don't slander one another. We don't tweet about one another. <laughs> oh, oh. Tweeting counts? Yeah, if we misrepresent someone else because we don't know the whole story or we're just trying to tear them down a little bit, like we don't, we don't do that to our people. We're trying to build a culture in which people can thrive under God and, and if we slander one another, if we speak poorly, if we misrepresent the actions of another, that doesn't build a healthy society. And number 10, the big one. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey. Or anything that is your neighbor's. <laughs> I love the descriptions. And you've got to think about it in terms of like uh, the, the next time you're on a flight. Please do not disable, tamper, or mess with the uh, smoke detectors. Like why do they have to list like three things? Because we would legitimize it, right? Well, I didn't disable it. I just tampered. I mean, I, I, didn't, I didn't break it. I, just, I was just messing with it. Like, we, would, we would legitimize our actions. And so God's being really specific. Not only are you not supposed to do these things, let me be really specific. You're not supposed to harbor in your heart a desire, a, a, an unhealthy desire to take or want what is someone else's. And he lists all of them. He's like, your neighbor's wife, his cow, his donkey, his tractor, his car, his cool new PlayStation. Like, I don't know what might be in your heart, but he says, like, whatever your neighbor has, anything that's his, don't 
Hold it in your heart and desire to take it like it's yours. And that one is probably the one that twists the most in all of us. Because we can probably will ourselves toward the right action. What we probably can't do is will our hearts to the right desires. We can modify our behaviors, but it's very difficult to modify our desires. And see, the challenge with all of this is this. The law actually has tremendous limits. Because there are requirements. There are, there, the law reveals the requirements of God. This is how you should set up society. This is how you should relate to one another. But it doesn't empower obedience. Like, I can know the right thing to do, but I, can't, I don't have the ability to do it. And what ends up happening is that when we see the rules, and we do not have the ability, we do one of two things. Or if we have responsibilities without the ability, it means we either redefine the requirements or we despair. We either redefine the requirements or we despair. And we do this all the time. So my kids, I give them simple instruction. I've got four amazing kids, a nine-year-old daughter, Peyton, an eight-year-old son, Micah, a six-year-old son, Jesse, and a three-year-old daughter, Juliet. And I say, okay, Micah and Jesse, I need you to clean your room. Well, there's a lot of latitude in that request, right? So clean, I typically say, okay, make sure there's nothing on the floor. And they're like, done. So it all gets thrown onto the bed and then thrown into the closet, right? And so they're, they're literally redefining the requirements of daddy's law. That's what they're doing. Like, it's easier for me to achieve this, so I'm just going to do that. We all do it in our diets, Right? So you're like, oh, I'm gonna, I want to have this diet. I want to be healthy. And so you're like, okay, I'm not going to eat anything that brings me joy. And only things that are raw and hard, so I'll be raw and hard, right? Like that's what I'm going to do, right? So vegetables, ripe meat, and like no donuts or squishy things. So I'm just, I'm going to do this, right? <laughs> and you've set your own rules, right? Like these are rules you have set. And then you're like, well, it's the weekend, Right? Like, why would I follow the diet on the weekend? That doesn't count. Like, it's the weekend. And so, like, all of a sudden, you've rewritten your own rules. And, you, and what it reveals is there's something within our heart. We will redefine. We will reduce the requirements if it fits our needs. And that was Jesus' big critique of the Pharisees. Because they had the law in front of them. But what he writes of them in his seven woes in Matthew chapter 28, he says this. This is one of the woes. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You tithe mint and dill and cumin, meaning you take 10% of, of your spice rack and you give it to God, which was honoring to God. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You've redefined the law into something you can do and actually something that's more convenient for you to do. So if we can't do the law, we'll redefine it. Or the secondly, we'll despair. And this is Paul's experience. Paul in Romans 7 describes it this way. He says, what shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known what sin, I would not have known sin. For I would have not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Because I saw a donkey I really wanted. But sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covenants. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. He says, look, as soon as you told me what not to do, 
that enlivens something in my heart to run towards sin. So the law is not bad. The problem is the law can't change the human heart. The law can't make me want to do what's right. And that's actually what God said in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5 is the second giving of the Mosaic law into a new nation. And he's bringing them and he's preparing them to go into the promised land. And, and he recites again the law of God. And then he says this in Deuteronomy 5. The Lord, he says, go near and hear all that the Lord your God will say and speak to us on, to all of us what the Lord has said to you. Deuteronomy 5 verse 20, it says this, And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of the people which they have spoken to you. They are right. They said, we're going to do what you asked, God. We're going to do it. Verse 28, 29. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and keep my commandments. See, the problem is we have a relationship, but we have no resources to obey. We have the rules but we do not have the capacities to actually fulfill the rules. We don't have a heart that loves the thing of, of God. So what is the solution? What is the solution to the law? The first part is this, it's fulfilled in Christ. Jesus says this, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And in Matthew chapter 5, he, he goes through even many of the commandments. He says, he says look, you, you, said, you said do not murder, but like you're harboring hate in your heart. Like you're, you're missing the heart of the law. You said do not commit adultery, but I'm telling you, like you, you're harboring lust in your heart. You're looking at women lustfully, and it's, it's, it's negative. And he says, look, I've come to fulfill it, meaning I've come to obey the law perfectly to show you what it's really about and live the life you could not live in perfect obedience to God. Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus came to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. What does it take to get into heaven? Perfection. It does. And Jesus is that perfection. He fulfilled the law perfectly. And our responsibility is to respond in faith Jesus' fulfillment of the law. There's this in Galatians. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were as baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He says, look, the new step for believers is not to try to obey the law but to respond in faith to Christ it's to come to Jesus on our knees not on our feet not trying to will ourselves to obey the law but to come to Jesus under his fulfillment of the law see Martin Luther when he saw this reality completely changed his life he was a teacher um, in And during that time as a pastor and teacher, he literally writes, I hated the righteousness of God. These requirements that I needed to obey. And I was was so mad at God until he started reading in the New Testament, particularly Romans and Galatians. And he writes this, then finally God had mercy on me. 
And I began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God by which a righteous man lives, namely faith. And that that's the sentence. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. So God does have a righteous requirement. And he fulfilled that requirement through the person of Jesus Christ. So are we under the law? Do we have a responsibility as believers today to actually follow the Old Testament law? That's the big question. And the answer is no. We are not under the Mosaic law. We are under the law of Christ. We are free from the burdens of the law. And we are called to walk the spirit by Christ. Here's what it says in Galatians 5.18. But if you are led by the spirit, you are no longer under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. They're sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry. But the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions so the big question all of you have is this can I eat bacon like this whole sermon at the end of it what do you say about bacon Kevin here's the truth there are some of the ten commandments that are reiterated in the law of Christ in fact nine of the ten are repeated in the New Testament the only one that's not is the Sabbath The Sabbath is the only commandment not repeated in the New Testament. But we're called to honor God, to love love our neighbor as ourself. All of those are repeated, but the Sabbath is the one that's not. A lot of the ceremonial law of, of sacrifice systems, that was all fulfilled in Christ. We don't need to sacrifice Jesus again. It's once and for all, as Hebrew tells us. He fulfilled all of the law by his life and death and resurrection. He fulfilled it. So are we under obligation to keep the Old Testament law? No, but we are, we are under obligation to follow the law of Christ. And so when Old Testament law is reiterated with New Testament instruction, we follow the New Testament instruction. So you can eat bacon. That was the issue with Peter. He has this vision. Why are all these unclean animals here? I can't, I've never eaten anything that are unclean. He's like, I've cleansed them. You can eat them. So that is the new believer's responsibility to the Old Testament law. But we actually have even a higher level of responsibility in the law of Christ. Meaning, we're supposed to love one another like Christ loved us. That's a self-sacrificing love. We're called to bear one another's burdens and let's fulfill the law of Christ. That means that we walk in humility with the Spirit's guidance in our life, guiding where he would want us to go. Like the Israelites followed the pillar of fire and smoke to see where God was wanting them to go, we follow the the Spirit of God who is both alive in us and alive in the community of believers so that we might follow God today. We have a responsibility to follow the Spirit and to continue to crucify the flesh with his passions and desires and to submit our lives to God. And so is there a law? Yeah, in some senses, yes, it's the law of Christ. But it is not the Mosaic Covenant. I'm going to give you a couple applications to think about. The first one is this. You understand the purpose of the law. It's to establish this nation, an intimate relationship with God. Do you understand that Jesus fulfilled it? He, he completed. He's the end of the Old Testament law. And thirdly, are you truly letting the Spirit 
guide your life. See, at one level when I say we do not have a responsibility to the Old Testament law, what can happen is, is in a great way you're like, okay, I'm free from that burden, that's good. But the second step is, have I actually allowed God to start changing my hearts and desires to follow him? Because here's the beautiful gospel. Jesus lived the life we could not live in perfect obedience to God and his law. And then he died the death we deserve to die. He died in our place for our sins, forgiving us of all of our sins. And then he sends his Holy Spirit to live in you. And our responsibility as believers is to take the time with God and with the community. Say, Lord, am I actually honoring you with my life? Am I actually living for you? Am I loving you above all else? Am I loving my neighbor as myself? Or am I just looking for a way to escape what you're asking me to do? I want to give you a moment right now. Just take a moment between you and God and say, Lord, am I actually living according to your spirit? Have I set up idols in my own heart? Am I actually living a life honoring to you and considering you when I think about my major? Considering you when I'm raising my kids? Considering you about my future and my job? Or am I just wanting you to bless what I'm already doing? Are you walking by the Spirit? And pray for us. Lord, thank you that you have called out the people of Israel You've brought them to yourself and you've shown us that you are a God who loves, who redeems, who saves, who who loves to rescue. And Lord, you didn't stop with redeeming just an ancient people. You are redeeming people today by the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, when we look at the Old Testament law, it can become overwhelming in many ways. But Lord, I thank you that you fulfilled it in Jesus Christ. And my prayer that each one of us would take time this weekend. We would look at our priorities. We would look at our practices. And we would say, Lord, am I really honoring you? Am I really walking by the Spirit? Or am I just looking for an easy way out? And Lord, we would submit our lives to you and trust you to guide us. Amen.